Good morning, everybody. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you, and um, it's a um, great honor to be pastor here, and uh, I'd like to get to talk to as many of you as I can afterwards, especially if you're new here. I um, would love to be able to introduce you around and help you get connected at Parkview. In fact, one thing that struck me the last four to six weeks or so has been uh, the variety of people that come here uh, every Sunday, and um, I've had great conversations. Last week, I met a woman who grew up in Sierra Leone, and she used to receive shoeboxes, like in the town that she lived in. So she told us of a couple years where she got some stuff in there and didn't know what it was. But for the most part, it was an amazing gift for her to, to, to do that. So um, a couple weeks ago, I met a, a woman from, whose roots are from Nepal, and she's here hoping to get medical training so that she can go back to Nepal as a doctor and represent Jesus there. So just fascinating people there. So if you're new, I've been around here 23 years. There's some amazing people here, some very good friends. And if uh, you've, been, you've been here a while, like keep your eyes open for people that are new here. Last week too, I met five couples that are brand new to Parkview and ready to jump in and join us. So always you know, talk to the people next to you and on the way out, because there's some, there's some great people here, all right? So this fall we've been studying the book of Genesis. We're doing the first 11 chapters, and uh, I am really bummed out we have to do today. Uh, Genesis 3 is kind of where it all unravels, right? So Genesis 1, if you could put a banner over that chapter, it's God is great because with just spoken word, God created the heavens and the earth. And you think about our universe today that has 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars. The earth, I mean the sun in our, gal- in our solar system, is a very average star. And you think of billions and billions of those, and God created that main, main, just merely with his voice. And so you go through each day of creation. It was good, it was good, it was good. And in day six, kind of the end of chapter one, the crescendo was when God created the first a man and woman, created in his image. And so that's us, like created uniquely by God to bear his image. And so put a banner over chapter one, it's God is great. Remember the first audience reading Genesis? would have been leaving Egypt 400 years in slavery around all kinds of other worldviews and small g gods that the Egyptians worshiped. And God's message to his people is, there is one God who is supreme over all, and he's your God, so just worship him, right? So chapter one. Chapter two takes day six of creation and just blows it out, like takes its time and goes through it, how God created the first man and woman. And we've seen some beautiful things in there. One reason I was excited about us studying Genesis is that I think today we live in a world where so many people are asking, who am I? Why am I here? Uh, What's my identity? And so there are so many rich truths to to glean from Genesis 2 that we were created personally by God. We were created to know him. He breathed the first life into that first man. We were given a work to do. Uh, He placed the first man and woman in in Eden, a, a beautiful place. And last week we saw the first marriage, God's desire for a one flesh relationship between a man and woman, the gift of marriage. So you get to the end of Genesis 2 and you go, on, this is outstanding. But probably, you know, we've asked before, like, what's wrong? Like, what is broken? Uh, not just in the world around us, but if we're honest, like even right in here, what's broken? What's wrong? How could a God who created everything we see in Genesis 1 and 2, like, what happened? And so... You know the original audience reading this, like after Egypt, they'd been suffering as slaves. Like they had seen so many atrocities. And so there's Genesis 1-2. They had to be asking, what happened? Like what, what happened after that? And so that's what's going to happen here in Genesis 3. We're going to look at the fall of man and woman, like what happened to us. And 
It is a great chapter for us. It's going to be hard. And as I was studying one and two in the last couple of weeks, I just, there was this cloud over me, like, oh no, but I know we're going to get to chapter three. Can't we just stay in Genesis one and two? A couple of conversations in the foyer last hour was like, wouldn't it be cool if there was no Genesis three? Like we just could have kept going, but there is. And so what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see the enemy's game plan because it's very similar to what we go through today. The way the enemy got the first man and woman to sin is very similar to what we see today. So the enemy's game plan, the gravity of sin, but what's beautiful, what emerges from the most horrific chapter in the Bible is, the, is a picture of the grace of God, all right? Game plan, gravity, grace. That's what we're gonna see today. So if you could, would you stand with me? And we're gonna read the first seven verses of Genesis 3, and then I'm gonna pray for us, then we'll jump in uh, and study it together. So you can follow along. The words are on the screen. If you have a Bible, too, you can just turn to Genesis 3, third chapter into the Bible. So let me read it uh, to us, and then we'll study it. Pray, and then study it. So now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will, sure, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Let's pray. God, this is an incredibly sobering passage. Unfortunately, this isn't just a history lesson of something that happened to the first man and woman, but this is something that daily happens to us as well. We are tempted to reject the God who is so good and who is so great. And it has brought grave consequences into our lives. But what's amazing is in the midst of this, we're going to see your grace. So please teach us, help us to, to stay alert. You are good to us. You speak truth to us. I pray that you'd reveal what you want us to see. Let me invite you to pray for a second and just, just ask God to help you focus. There's, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of distractions on your mind this morning, could you just personally ask God to teach you something that you need to know today? And guys, could you pray for me? I'm gonna have to do something today that I don't like to do and I don't do well, but I'm gonna have to be incredibly bold and talk about sin and its gravity. Can you ask that God would speak clearly uh, through me today. I love you. I love God. Um, just help me speak boldly and clearly today. Could you pray for that? God, we love you, and we need you. Please speak through your word to your people today. In your great name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. So, let's talk about the enemy's game plan. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if you were Satan and you were commissioned to try to get you to stop believing God, stop following God, where would you attack? Okay, it's kind of like, wait a minute, what are you saying? It's Sunday morning, I can't, okay. So if you were the enemy looking at you, like where would you attack you? Like where are your weaknesses? There are football coaches all around the country today. We had a bunch of games yesterday, but this morning, I promise you, there are tons of football coaches watching game films of next week's opponents. 
They're looking for weaknesses. They're looking for cracks in defenses and offenses where they can apply their strengths and attack and defeat the team next week. Can I just tell you that there is an enemy that hates you? The Bible tells us about Satan, that he is a fallen angel, that he rebelled against God. You can look at Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, and there's some other places where we are taught about this fallen angel. And he is an enemy of God. What's a bummer for him, but not for anybody else, is that he will never defeat God. He is not infinite in power like God is. But for a season, he has been given um, some control, some rule, some uh, domain over uh, this world, and that includes us. And since Satan knows he will never defeat God, he does what's next best in his mind, and he's going to attack what's most precious to God, and that's God's people, all right? And so he is, the Bible warns us, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's like he stalks us. He knows us. He watches us. He's hunting us because his desire is to crush us. And he'll do anything he can to do that. He'll lie to you. He'll make sin look fun and look good. And he'll get you to deny God. That's his goal. That's an end game for him. And so what we're going to see this morning is how did he first attack the first man and woman? And I don't know if you've thought about this before, but we're reading Genesis 3. Up till this point, there has never been a sin, all right? So Adam and Eve can't say, well, I was having a bad day, and I know you weren't. Like, you were in Eden. It was the perfect place to be, right? Or you can't say, well, I kind of got an anger problem. I kind of got that from my dad. No, you did not. Like, there's, like, any excuse they would roll out, well, I was kind of tired. No, you weren't. Like, so, like, anything they would roll out, there is no excuse. And so what's profound is the enemy just said two statements, just two words, two sentences that derailed everything. And guys, if this temptation worked in Eden, I promise you this works in Iowa City. And this works with you and it works with me. So we have a privilege this morning of just looking at God and his love is just showing us what happened. What is the enemy's game plan? And let's just jump right in. Two statements derailed everything, all right? Here's the first one, verse one, chapter three. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Wow, what are the implications there? Wow, boy, God is mean. God puts you in this garden. He doesn't let you eat of any of the trees. Man, you're going to starve. Like, how are, you, how are you supposed to trust a God like that? And so there's the tone that he's immediately setting with the woman. There's some seeds that he's planting in her mind that God is not good, that God holds back on you. Boy, God is mean. Because could I refresh us of what God actually said? It's in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. This is what God really said. He said, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You couldn't be more opposite, right? You can surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Actually, Adam and Eve had an amazing setup. We talked about that the last couple weeks. They didn't do anything. They just showed up, and God blessed them. And God like, invited him, them into personal relationship with him. He placed them in a beautiful garden. And we see in verse 16, chapter 2, he said, Hey, I know you didn't plant this garden. I know you probably don't feel like you deserve to be here, but you're here. Like, this is home. Go and enjoy everything you want. It's yours. What's mine is yours. A generous God. But there was one unique aspect in which God invited 
Adam and Eve into a unique relationship with him, and it was a trust and obedience relationship. He only gave them one command, and in a way for them to show their love and trust for him, he said, hey, there is one tree, though, that I'm gonna ask you, don't eat from that one, but look around, look, look at everything else. Look at how good I am to you, like, enjoy this, all right? The enemy's twist was completely different. He's mean, he's holding out on you, you can't trust that God. And so verse two, we see Eve's response, and she says, I give her like a B, maybe a B minus on this response. So she says, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Boom, she got that. Uh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said anything about touching, all right? It's almost like Satan opened a door, just cracked the door a little bit. Could it be that God isn't good? Could it be that God is holding out on you and kind of, kind of withholding really good stuff from you? Let me just crack that door. And she kind of went there. Oh, yeah, he even said, don't touch it. That sounds kind of unreasonable, doesn't it? And so that's where we are. Then we go, remember, the enemy just said two things. Here's the second thing he said. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Guys, this is the first lie. I guess the first one was kind of a lie too, right? It was a deception, twisting God's word. But here he just flat out contradicts God. You won't die. Because what God's doing here is holding back from you. He doesn't want you to enjoy what he enjoys. He doesn't want you to be like him. Man, what a mean God. You can't trust that God. You should just do what you think is right. You should just go for it, all right? And that's all it took. Just those two statements. Like, it's a part of me. I'm not saying I... You know, we may have done the same thing. But when you have wished for her to just say, wait, what are you talking about? Like, look at this God. Like, look what he's given us. Like, look at Eden. Like, look at all these trees I can eat. But, but he, he worked. He got in there. He got her to doubt God's goodness. And so verse 6, when she saw that the tree was good for food, there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. This is the first sin. This is the first slap in the face of God and saying, God, I'm not going to trust you. God, I can do better than you. God, I know more than you. I don't believe that you're good. I think I can do better. I can satisfy myself better than you can. I want more. I can do better. And uh, the thing I want us to also notice is how verse uh, 6 finishes. It says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Can you hear it loud and clear from me? Uh, oftentimes, this story puts the blame at Eve's feet. Can you hear my version? Is I think Adam is the one to blame. He, like as soon as that serpent started talking, man, that head should have been off that snake, like this. Like, what are you talking about? Like, he should have stepped in, slammed that thing unbound, and just crushed it. Like, stop lying about God. Like, just, who was the one that heard the command? It was, he heard it. Like, Adam had just one, <laughs> you can do anything you want except one thing. Did you not, did you not tell Eve about that one thing? And when you saw that one thing was even being breached and even possible, why didn't you take action? Adam was incredibly passive right here. In fact, I, there's, this is a super twisted view, like different theories. Like, what was Adam thinking? Here's, this could be. 
Like Adam was sitting there passively instead of lopping that head off that snake, watching what would happen. Why was he watching? Some people have conjectured, well, maybe secretly he wanted to eat the fruit, but he wanted to see Eve go first. And if she ate and crumbled, I'd go, well, yeah, I would have never done that. But what if she ate of that and like, whoa, it was good. In fact, she did eat and nothing happened. He's like, yeah, give me some of that. Like passively, he was longing for the same thing she was, and he did not defend her. God, can I just speak to men for a second here, particularly those of us that are honored, privileged with the role of husband and dad? Um, we cannot be passive. We cannot be passive spiritual leaders in our home. We cannot just stand back and hope things go well uh, with our wives in this world today, or hope our, our kids will just follow God on their own, and I'll just kind of stand back. No, 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 no. We see what that did in the first marriage, and I can promise you that it's not a good plan. Men, don't feel beat down, but feel called up. That We are called not to be passive, but to be sacrificial spiritual leaders in our marriages and in our homes. That Adam was passive. I blame Adam for what's going on right here, all right? So let me just summarize. The enemy's strategies are the same. Like what he did there in Eden, he still does today. If it worked in Eden, it's going to work in Iowa City, you guys. So there's three things. If you break this down, this is what he did. Number one is that he gets us to doubt God's word. I would, I would say you can even back that up a step. He distracts us so that we're not even in God's word. You know what would be really humbling this morning? Man, I'm, gonna, I'm piling on a little thick today. Hang with me. But like if we had up on the screen and it just flashed numbers of either how many times or how many minutes we spent like individually reading God's word this week. Like I think we'd be humbled, all right? And then beyond that, not just that we read it, but that we obey it. But, but Satan's gonna do all he can to distract us so that we're not in God's word and he's gonna make us doubt God's word. Okay, when God says this, I'm not gonna believe that or that's not really true. Or yeah, I'll do some of what God says, but I'm gonna do some of what I think or what these people say I should do. He's gonna get us to doubt God's word. He's gonna get us to diminish God's goodness. We're gonna forget about how good God is. And we're gonna be convinced that we can do better somewhere else besides doing what God says. We're gonna diminish God's goodness, all right? And so, again, Eve's response should have been, are you crazy? Like, look what I've got, look how good God is. But we so quickly forget what God has done to us. And the third part of the strategy here is that he downplays sin's consequences. He said, you surely won't die. I mean, God warned them, if you do this, death is gonna come. He said, Pfft, don't. So he's going to downplay sin's consequences. So that leads into my second point, is that we've really got to understand the gravity of sin. The gravity of sin, all right? So let's look. God already warned them, if you disobey me, you will die. And there were devastating results. I'm not going to have time to read through all of Genesis 3 this morning, but I invite you to do that. Just kind of grit your teeth and just read. Like, what happened? If you look at the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2, now you see the devastation that comes from sin. And so we've got to get an understanding about how grave sin is. All that was so beautiful in chapter two is now shattered in chapter three. Sin is devastating. You see broken relationships, a broken relationship with God. So after they sinned, God looked for them and they ran and hid from him. Instead of walking like closely with him, they ran from him. Their marriage was shattered. 
Like, so instead of like being intimate, one flesh, unashamed, now they were afraid of each other. They were ashamed. And listen to the blame game they played. So God said, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, it's interesting, he went to the man first. Again, I think it was Adam's fault. So God spoke to the man first and said, have you eaten from that tree? Listen to what Adam said. The woman you gave me, (laughs) the woman who you gave to be with me, gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So, whoa, there's a double blame game going on right there. It's her fault, and ultimately, God, you know what? It's your fault. Why did you give her to me? Gosh, are you kidding me? In chapter two, you were singing songs about her, like how beautiful she was, and just, and now you're like, what is going on? And so then God asked her, like, what, what happened? And she said, well, uh, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. So they're blaming God. They're ashamed of each other. They're kind of blaming and not owning up to what's going on. And so relationships are shattered. We also see that God steps in now. He's a holy God. He cannot tolerate sin. And so you see him stepping in with punishment and curse. And so for the woman, each of the entities had a certain curse put on them. For the woman, it was increased pain in childbirth. Uh, for, for the guy, for the man, it was the ground would now be infested with thorns and thistles and that the work that he was called to do would no longer be, be easy and fulfilling and fun, but now it would be hard. It would be just reeked with toil and, and difficulty in trying to accomplish the work that God gave him to do. In fact, all of creation was cursed in this moment. Romans 8 tells us that the world groans because of this sin and this brokenness. And so, uh, and then the last uh, is that, is that the, uh, the last of the curse was that we will die, that there will now be death, that just like you came from the ground, now through the ground, you will uh, return. And so at the end, God banishes them from paradise. Their relationship with God has changed. And what used to be a relationship of intimacy is now a relationship of alienation from God. So let's do this for a couple minutes. And this is not what I enjoy doing, but I think in, in light of this text, we've got to get in our collective faces here and talk about sin and talk about how devastating sin is. Sin wages war on your soul. Sin will cut us off from God. Sin will devastate our relationships with each other. It fills us with shame. It hardens our hearts with blame and self-righteousness to where I can see everybody else's sin super well, um, but I'm going to downplay and minimize my own sin. I can judge, I can criticize, I can slander, and at the same time be completely oblivious of my own sin and my own need. Sin wages war on our souls. It robs us of joy. It robs us of peace. It never satisfies, and it drains our strength. You see it throughout this scripture, the gravity of sin and what it does to your soul. Sin will always promise, but it will never deliver. Sin will kill you. It cuts you off from God and the life that he wants to give you. It cuts you off from people who God has placed in our lives that we are to do life with. It is not good to be alone, but sin isolates us. And it causes us to size people up and to slander and manipulate and use, and, and it just ruins our relationships. And all of this comes from the same source we see in Genesis 3, doubting God's word, denying God's goodness, downplaying the consequences. I wonder this morning, how many of us are oblivious 
to how devastating sin is in our lives right now. I wonder how many marriages, how many friendships, I wonder how many souls are just restless and devastated and struggling because of sin, and we're not even aware of it. And the consequences of a fallen world are just all around us too, and it all comes from Genesis 3. And there are some dear people I love that just have walked through tragedy, a loss of a daughter this week, a loss of a sister in an accident this week. There were tears in the foyer before this service. Every cancer, every accident, every disease, every act of torture and human trafficking all are the result of a broken world and filled with sinful people. And, and we walk through even things we haven't perpetrated are now done on us and to us because we live in a broken world. This is absolutely devastating. God, help us shudder at the gravity of sin and stop downplaying sin and see it like you see it. Let me uh, come up for a little breath. And I'm about ready to ruin lunch for some of you. All right. So the Food and Drug Administration has standards that above certain standards, they will not let certain food products go off the shelves in grocery stores. How many of you like how many of you like peanut butter, or could I say used to like peanut butter before I tell you of what those standards are, okay? So here's an action level that if, if an average of, if, if a peanut butter, serving a peanut butter, jar of peanut butter has an average of 30 or more insect fragments or one or more rodent hairs per 100 grams, like that's the cutoff. So that means every 18-ounce jar of peanut butter can have 150 insect fragments and five rodent hairs, and that's good enough. Like just send it off the shelves and there you go, okay? That, that would meet FDA restrictions, all right, for peanut butter. Let's talk about chocolate, all right? So an action level of chocolate is that you can, have, you can have an average of 60 or more insect fragments and one or more rodent hairs per 100 grams. So that means a typical chocolate bar is about 60 grams or two ounces, and it could have as many as 36 insect fragments and half a rodent hair and just go off the shelves. Like, good enough, there we go, all right? I've actually heard one scientist say that actually those insect parts are good for us. They're high in protein, low in carbs, low in fat. So just think about that. Let me ruin two more foods for you. Raisins are actually a pretty good treat. These are like one of the most disgusting. So insect and insect eggs are the main culprits in raisins. And so 10 or more whole or equivalent insects and 35 fruit fly eggs are allowed per every eight ounces of raisins. Enjoy. So, and here's one more. Maybe you go, well, I'm gonna be a super good mom or dad. I'm gonna cook healthy stuff for my family. I'm gonna cook cookies and brownies from scratch. Let me just pull out that wheat flour off the shelf. An average, in an in a, in a, in a, a, a allowable standard off the shelves, and there can be an average of 75 or more insect fragments and one or more rodent hairs per 50 grams. That means a two-pound bag can have as many as 1,300 insect fragments and 18 rodent hairs. Enjoy. Like, so how many of you are going to go home today and just lay out that two-pound bag of flour and just look it over on your countertop today? But... Um, you know what's, what's, that's disgusting, actually. But what's, um, what's really sobering is, like, that bothers us probably a lot more than 
you know, what, how serious are we about this sin in our own lives? Like even, there was a book came out about 10 years ago called Respectable Sins. Oh, everybody does these. Everybody worries. Everybody uh, slanders and gossips. Those aren't really big. Um, uh, insect parts, insect eggs, rodent hairs are nothing compared to the devastation of sin in our souls and in our lives. Some of us, and especially me, we need to stop playing games with sin. We need to stop just kind of belittling our own sin. We need to make a big deal of sin. So what is beautiful, you guys, is that even in the most horrific chapter in the Bible, with the greatest and gravest consequences of any chapter in the Bible, we're going to see the grace of God. Ephesians 2 says that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. First three verses talk about that. But then verse 4 has the two most important words in the Bible when it says, but God, but God. In spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of us rejecting him, God is merciful and God is gracious. That is our only hope. And we see that even in the gravest and the most ugly chapter in the Bible, we see the grace of God. The first thing you see is that after Adam and Eve have sinned and, and, and the others kind of scattered and don't know what they're doing, God pursues them. God initiates relationship with them. God moves toward sinners. And the epitome of that is the life of Jesus Christ, right? When he said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You think about Jesus leaving heaven to come be with sinners and to die for sinners. That's a reflection of the heart of our God. It's that he moves toward us in our sin because he's gracious. There's a couple other small glimpses here where he promises Eve that there will be children, that she will have offspring, that you know, he's still going to bless in that way. He creates and kind of designs their first clothes like he's providing for them there. But, but the most powerful glimpse of grace is in verse 15. In verse 15, so this is where God is kind of pronouncing his judgment on the serpent and on Eve and on Adam. But listen to what he says to the serpent. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's your $10,000 uh, theological word of the day. It's proto-evangelion, okay? Proto-evangelion is what Genesis 3.15 is. It means the first gospel, the first glimpse of the gospel. Gospel means good news. In the midst of this horrific tragedy, God is foretelling of the gospel. And so the way he does that is he talks about enmity now between the woman and her seed, her descendants, and the enemy and his descendants. God does not want this unholy alliance to continue that led to, you know, this, this first sin. He wants enmity between them. And so he's looking down the road that there will be a seed from the woman who, for a moment it looks like, the enemy will bite his heel, but that he will crush his head. What Adam should have done in the garden, the seed coming is going to come and crush the head of the enemy. And now the Bible story continues from Genesis 3, and there's this thread that points us more and more and more clearly to the seed, and that is Jesus Christ. 
and you look at the cross where for those, you know, for that instant where the most heinous act that's ever happened on the planet was the sinless son of God was hung on a cross and it looked like there you see the enemy striking his heel like, ah, I killed the sinless son of God. But then three days later when Jesus arose from the dead, he defeated sin and death. He crushed the enemy right there. Victory has been won. Like there is no more curse for those who believe in Jesus Christ. We can be set free from sin and death through Jesus Christ. So even in this heinous moment, the bleakest, darkest, most tragic moment in the Bible, God has planted a seed of hope. He's saying, you look ahead and you look at what my son, Jesus Christ, is going to do. And so now there's just a stark contrast, and you see it played out in different parts of the Bible. Here's Adam, but then here's Jesus. Like, and there's no comparison, right? So from Adam came the first sin and came curse and death, but through Jesus came obedience and righteousness and life. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He went 40 days without eating. And one of the temptations was, turn this rock into bread. And instead of just kind of doubting God's goodness, Jesus upheld the word of God and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Jesus trusted the goodness of his father. He clung to the word of God and he defeated the enemy's temptations. So Jesus is a way better Adam. No brainer there, right? And so he is the seed. He is the one who, instead of bringing death and judgment upon us like Adam did, Jesus now brings forgiveness. He brings power over sin and death, and he brings life to us. That is the grace of God given to sinful people like you and me, and that is our only hope. We can be set free from sin by Jesus Christ. Two beautiful verses. There's several, but these are two of my favorite. Romans 5 8, God demonstrates his love for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's every one of us needed what Jesus did for us on the cross. Or Romans 6 23, the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be separated from God. We deserve to have our souls devastated by sin because we're sinners. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin was such a huge deal to God uh, that he was willing to give his son, Jesus Christ, to defeat it for us. And so becoming a Christian, being set free from sin, uh, is making the greatest trade you'll ever make in your life. It's admitting, giving to God your sin and your brokenness and receiving back from him because of his grace because of what Jesus did on the cross, forgiveness and being set free from sin and then new life through Christ. That is, that is the most amazing trade you'll ever make. And I'll also say it's probably one of the most humbling things you'll ever do because you have to admit that I am a sinner, that I am broken, and I cannot do anything about it. It's incredibly humbling, but God responds with his grace. And so um, when we read Acts three nineteen to 20, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins can be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. This morning, I think God's calling us to a couple places. One is, if you don't know Jesus yet or you're not sure you've embraced the gospel, I want to talk to you in a little bit, but that's, that's action step one. But for those of us that do know Jesus, maybe there's a new call this morning to this practice of repentance. 
that I think some of us could maybe use a refreshing that comes when we come clean before God about our sin. Listen to what one pastor says about repentance. The proper response to sin is deep, full, broken, earnest, tearful, prayerful, thorough, continual, humble repentance. Repentance is a glorious gift given to the children of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, our great dragon slayer. We leave you with the great gift of repentance and encourage you to use it often, share it liberally, rejoice in it continually for God's glory, your joy, and others' good. A beautiful gift of repentance. So let me wrap up with three questions for you. Are you ready for the enemy's attacks on you? It's not if they're coming, it's they're coming. The question is, are you ready? Let me just throw a couple things out there about fighting sin. You, I, you have got to be regularly reading the word of God. For me personally, the times where I'm made most aware of my sin is where I'm, when I'm reading this book. Like there are things in here that will encourage me, give me a good thought for the day, but there's times this book just nails me between the eyes and leads me into a time of what that pastor just said to do, of repentance. God, would you forgive me? God, would you cleanse me? God, would you show me a better way to do this? All right, so being in this book, can I throw you a second one? Can you make sure that regularly you are praising God and thanking God? Because the enemy's gonna make you think God's holding out on you, God's not good to you, God is ripping you off. If you could fight that with just a consistent time in your life where you're praising God for who he is and you're thanking him for what he's done, for you. That sounds so basic and simple. Guys, that is one of the strongest things you can do to fight off the enemy's lie that God isn't good to you, all right? Can I invite you into a third one? John McHale has done a great job of teaching our church about living in community. And so the third thing that I would strongly encourage is that you have other people in your life that are helping you fight sin. Don't do this alone. You need other people. Look at Romans 3, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that throughout the New Testament, like this is a team effort. We help each other. So are there people close enough to you that if you were to start messing up and start rejecting God, they love you enough to kind of look you in the eye and say, you got to stop that. Like, I love you too much to let you keep doing that. And so, so make sure you're in community in a place where people are watching you and caring for you and loving you in that way. Can I encourage us too that we see the gravity of sin and that we take God up on that beautiful offer of repentance, all right? And so here's the last thing I want to say as, a, as an action step. I would love, as a pastor, I would love it if everybody here this morning just absolutely knew for sure that you have embraced the gospel, that you are enjoying the gospel. What I have seen frequently over the last couple years is that I will talk to somebody who attends here for a while and maybe through different situations we're able to meet and talk and what will become clear to me is that some of these people don't know the gospel, don't know that they are forgiven of their sins and that Jesus has died for them. And I'm not, I, you know, I think it, I think there's so many ways we can get mixed up on what the gospel is. And usually the way we mix it up is we put too much on us. 
I gotta do more, I gotta try harder, I gotta go to church, I gotta, and you don't understand the gospel. It's like Jesus did the work for us on the cross. Our work is to believe. And so, guys, it has been beautiful to have those moments to just kind of talk and show scripture and literally, in some cases, to see just faces brighten, to see tears flow, and to hear people say, I didn't know the gospel. And so that grieves me. And so here, here's what we're doing. The next couple weeks, um, if you still have your tear-off card, okay, if you would like to just talk with I'm going to try to do all of them, but if I can't, like there's a lot of these. I've got some of my teammates that are ready to do this too. But I would love to have somebody just sit down with you and hear your story and then show you from the Bible, like this is how you receive the gospel. To make, this is not something you, yeah, I think I got that down. Like, don't go there. Like, you want to be sure, all right? So your action step is, if we can help with that in the next couple weeks, and we'll do our best, uh, if you could write your, some way to get a hold of you, phone number, email, whatever, your name, and then just write the words, be sure, on that card. We'll know what you're talking about. And then just tear that off, give it to the people at Parkview Connect. I'll be out in the foyer. You can just hand it to me, hand it to one of the pastors. But I would just love to be sure that every one of you really understands the gospel. It's not going to be heavy-handed. We're not going to beat you down. We're not going to, like, just whatever. We just want to explain and share it with you so make sure you know the gospel, all right? So thank you. Uh, let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that your word is just flat out honest with us, that you don't just give us little sayings about butterflies and birds and trees, and you speak right to the heart, and Genesis 3 does that. God, in your love, like a mirror, you're showing us our own hearts. You're showing us the enemy and what he does, how he loves to attack us. But I thank you so much in this very hard chapter. There is a clear picture of your grace. You are a good God. And that even in this very dark chapter, we are given a light toward what Jesus has done for every one of us in the cross. So God, may we be a church that takes sin seriously, especially our own. God, would you protect the marriages and the families and the relationships in this room where right now sin is wreaking havoc. God, would you step in in your grace and heal. And God, would you protect this church the enemy would love to see sin divide this church. God, keep us strong. And we just praise you for the gift of repentance, the chance of coming before you, coming clean, being refreshed. And Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. May we be a church that lives humbly and passionately for the gospel. In your great name we pray. Amen.